Well, have you ever heard of George Clemenceau? Clemenceau was the French prime minister from 1906 to 1909, and then again during World War I. And he was known as being a man of great confidence. Earlier in his life, he fought many duels. You know, the kind where you, you go back to back and you, you pace 10 feet and you turn and you shoot and one of you dies. Well, he fought a lot of duels. And on one occasion, he was at the Paris Railroad Station on way to a duel. And he had an assistant with him. And his assistant was very shocked to hear that he only ordered one ticket, a one-way ticket to the duel. And his assistant said, isn't that a little pessimistic? And Clemenceau responded, why, no, I always use my opponent's ticket for the trip home. And that right there is pretty much the definition of confidence. Well, are you a confident person? Do you exude confidence? A confident person is full of conviction and certitude. It's where you're so certain of the outcome of something, you can act as if it's already happened. Rolf Miroth, the athlete who rejoices and celebrates in his victory, even before the competition has begun. The problem with all such self-confidence, though, is it's placed in self. And self-confidence will only take you so far because yourself will eventually fail. The athlete's body, for example, will wear out. For this reason, a lot of people don't live very confident lives because they don't think of themselves as exceptionally smart or athletic or gifted or, or whatever. But did you know Christians are meant to be very confident people? God wants you to be extremely confident. The kicker, though, is that we are not to place our confidence in ourselves. Ours is not a self-confidence, but a God-confidence. And that's, in fact, one way to define faith, great confidence in God and his word and his promises. And such God-confidence is far better than self-confidence, of course, since God never fails. And when you come to really have that confidence in God, you trust him, you take him at his word, when you get there, it leads to a life of just great peace and joy like you've never known. Again, confidence is all about knowing the outcome of events. And although we don't know what tomorrow may hold, we know who holds tomorrow. We know what eternity holds, and it's on that confidence, ours which is found in Christ. What we know is ours in Christ, that we have this great joy and this great confidence right now. Well, such a life was lived by the Apostle Paul, and we want to continue to learn from his example this morning as found in Philippians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, take it open to Philippians chapter 1. After Christmas, after New Year's, we're back to our our bread and butter, going through the book of the Bible, Philippians, verse by verse. And as you remember, Paul writes this short letter while being imprisoned in Rome. We've already learned, though, his circumstances actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The Philippian church was very concerned that his imprisonment would mean the halt Of the gospel. But to the contrary, Paul writes and lets them know that actually the gospel is progressing further and and faster with him in jail than out. And he had always wanted to minister in Rome, and granted, he never envisioned himself doing so from, from imprisonment, but nonetheless, God was working things out. And Paul never would have had access to Caesar's household otherwise. Furthermore, many other Christians in Rome were emboldened to speak the word of God without fear because of his imprisonment. So in many ways, God was taking these these evil circumstances and using them for good. And so Paul rejoices. In verses 12 through 18, 
he tells them and us of his circumstances, how God is using them for good. And the verses that follow are verses for this morning. He then tells us of his attitude in response to his circumstances. Again, the Philippian church, they may have expected Paul to be down, to be depressed because he was confined, he was unjustly imprisoned. But that wasn't the case. Far from being dejected, he was actually rejoicing, even though he was locked up. We, we looked at this last time just in brief at the tail end of verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. We, we saw the, the hint of his response last time. Makes you wonder, though, how could Paul rejoice at a time like this? He's unjustly confined. Well, we hinted at how he could rejoice last time. It really demands more of an explanation, though. How could he really rejoice that he's where he is? Well, the explanation comes in the next verses, 18 through 20, our verses 4 this morning. We've said many times now, joy is a central theme in this little letter of Philippians. And who doesn't want to learn the secret to greater joy in life? And for Paul, it was found in his great confidence in God. He placed, he attached his joy to the Lord and the things of the Lord. That led him to great confidence in the Lord and the things of the Lord. And there was his joy. So we want to find out this morning more about this joy-producing confidence that Paul had. And like I said, God wants us to be confident Christians. Not self-confident, but God-confident. And Paul shows us what that looks like. So today in particular from Philippians 1, 18 through 20, I want to explore two key areas of confidence in God. Two key areas of confidence in God that you may learn to live in in peace and in joy. The first is confidence in deliverance by God. Confidence in deliverance by God. Let's read this passage, 18 through 20. It's really the, the last part of verse 18 through 20. He says at the end of verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You might see in verse 18, halfway through, most translations, they start a new paragraph right in the middle of verse 18 because he's beginning a new thought, and he is. Not only is Paul glad that Christ is being preached, but he's rejoicing for it for two other reasons, and he explains those two other reasons in verses 18 through 20, really verses 19 and 20. And the first is his confidence and deliverance by God. He, he's joyful because he knows he will be delivered. Look how verse 19 begins. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This is his confidence. He's extremely confident that this will turn out for his deliverance. And when he says this, that, that this will turn out, he's talking about his circumstances, which he just described, of being unjustly imprisoned. But no fear, he knows that this will turn out for deliverance. He's going to be delivered. 
one way or another. It's like the NFL player who's like, we're going to win the Super Bowl even before the game has come. He's just so confident he knows what's going to happen. It makes you think, though, wait, does Paul know like he's going to get out of jail? Does he have some knowledge that he's going to be released? Because remember, he's imprisoned waiting to stand trial before Caesar. And that can go one of two ways. Either he's released or he's executed. So does, does he have some sort of knowledge that he knows he's going to get out of jail? The answer is no. He actually doesn't know that he's going to get out of jail per se. That's not the type of deliverance he's talking about. When he speaks of his deliverance here, it's actually referring not to a physical deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance. How do we know this? Well, verse 19, the word for deliverance is actually soteria, which is the word for salvation. Although this word can be used to refer to a physical deliverance, most often Paul uses this word to speak of spiritual deliverance, salvation, how Christ delivers us from sin, from Satan, from death. And this is, in fact, how Paul uses that same word just a few verses later, again in verse 28. He speaks of salvation, deliverance, same word. So already we've got an idea that he's talking about a a spiritual deliverance right here. What seals the deal, of course, is the context. And as you keep reading, it becomes readily apparent. Paul is not necessarily looking forward to a physical deliverance because he says, well, by life or by death. And look at the end of verse 20. How is this going to turn out? He, He doesn't really know. But he knows whether by life or by death, he'll be delivered. This is a spiritual deliverance. Paul, like you and me, he can't see the future He doesn't know what's going to happen. Now we'll see later, actually, in Philippians, he he thinks he's going to be released. He he expects he's going to be released, but he doesn't really know. So here in verse 19, when Paul expresses his confidence in his deliverance, he's thinking about something more than just vindication before Caesar's court. Rather, he's talking about that ultimate vindication before the tribunal of heaven. He's anticipating his deliverance before God. Remember at the time he was unjustly imprisoned to rub salt in the wound. You have other Christians, they were taking shots at him. But Paul, he's just trusting God. He's placing his trust, his confidence in God. God's going to work it out. Even if he dies, God's going to work it out. God will right all wrongs in the end and safely deliver him to his kingdom. So what, what is there to fear? You know, I don't know about you, but I have trouble sometimes when people confuse wishful thinking with faith or this confidence. Maybe there's a, cu- a couple and they desperately want to get pregnant and someone says to them, well, of course you guys will get pregnant. You just have to have faith. We've got a guy and he's been unemployed for months, desperately looking for a job. He finally gets an interview and his friend says to him, you, you, you will for sure get this job. You just got to believe. You just have to have faith. Well, yes, we are to always have faith in God, but the Bible actually warns us against being presumptuous of the future. You don't know what's going to happen for the couple getting pregnant or the guy getting the job. God has not promised such things. It may not be God's will for that couple to get pregnant or for that guy to get that job. So what we're really talking about here, it's not faith, but hope. Now, look, we are still to hope in God for all things. Yes, of course. But there's really only one area where you are called to have this complete confidence. And that is in what God has revealed 
about the future. Your confidence, like Paul, must be found in the the promises of God. That God will, for example, save forever all who call on his name. That he will deliver them from sin, from Satan, from death. That he will safely bring them to his kingdom. That the sufferings of this present age don't even compare to the glories to be revealed. All all these promises, you don't have to presume on them. You, You can bank on them because God has promised. And for you, it's just a matter of now taking God at his word. Paul placed his confidence not in this world or in this life. Who knows how this life is going to turn out? We, we don't know. Rather, he placed his confidence in God, in his word, what he has promised. And so he knew, hey, whether by life or death, he's going to be delivered. And so will you if you are in Christ. That, that's the type of confidence we're talking about here, the confidence that should be yours. Now, if that's true for Paul in prison, what's the most important thing for him to do? It is simply to persevere, just to to finish the course. That's because God's deliverance is promised for those who persevere. You have to finish the race of the faith. Now, all reading Philippians 1, we've seen a big theme about preservation and perseverance. Paul knew that his deliverance was ultimately bound up with his perseverance in the faith. He needed to finish strong in following Christ, whether he lived or died. And this fact help explains or helps explain the rest of verse 19. Look, look back at verse 19. He's saying, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, and he says, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. There, and at the end of verse 19, he's explaining how he will be delivered, how he's going to persevere and finish the race. And he knows that God uses two means. Number one, the prayer of Christians. And number two, the provision of the Spirit. And let's just think on these for a little bit. First, the prayer of Christians. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, Paul here says the prayer of the church can accomplish much as well. Paul, I mean, just think about this. Paul, who we regard as like one of the most spiritual and godly men ever to have lived, even Paul did not count on his own power to follow Christ or to finish the race. His self-contained spiritual resources were not enough. Rather, Paul desperately desired prayer on his behalf to help him finish. Just think about that. Paul had confidence, but it wasn't a self-confidence. It was confidence in God. And he knew that God has chosen to use the prayers of others to help him run. Same should be true for us. Their prayers were like a currency that could only be cashed in in heaven. And Paul knew that God uses prayer. And that's why we see Paul all the time asking for prayer. It's like, I need it. And you know what? He did. And so do you. He wanted it because God would use those prayers to help him persevere. And think of the Olympic marathon runner. He's getting close to the end of the race. We can imagine he's so exhausted he just wants to drop down. But you get to the end, it's the roar of the crowd that gives him that final jolt of energy just to push through and to finish. 
In a similar way, God has chosen to use the, the prayers of the crowd, of the church, to propel us through the finish line. And this really serves as a much-needed reminder for us to be seeking prayer and to be praying for one another, specifically that we would finish strong. Again, speaking of themes, we've already seen a big theme of prayer in Philippians 1. We've seen a call to, to thank God for one another, to pray for the sanctification of one another, and here we can add to pray for the perseverance of one another. Do you pray first, and then do you pray for the, the perseveration, or perseverance rather, of your brothers and sisters in Christ, that they would just finish strong? Is that on your list? It needs to be. Now, how do you react when a fellow believer stumbles into sin and just kind of walking on that, that edge? Do you just judge them in your heart? Better would be to pray for them, that God would turn them back, that they would be convicted of their sin, that they would get back on the, the racetrack and finish. Or maybe you know of other believers who are battling depression, that they're sinking under the pressures of the world. Pray for them. Pray that they would endure, not that they would, would not give in. They would just, just keep going, just hang on to Christ and encourage them by letting them know you're praying for them. Paul himself, even though he was in jail, he was encouraged because he knew the whole Philippian church was praying for him. And it was by this that he was confident that he would persevere and be delivered. So first, God uses the prayers of the saints to help us persevere into our final deliverance. Secondly, God uses the provision of the Spirit. He mentions in verse 19. The word for provision simply means to supply what is needed and then some. So to that marathon runner, this is the nutrition before the race. So, you know, the massive load of carbs he eats before the race that will be converted into the actual energy he needs to run. And for Christians, our actual power source to run the race, it's not us, it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. Notice the connection actually between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, but he calls it the Spirit of Christ. Christ himself, you recall, he promised that he would abide forever in and with his disciples. That's you and me. Of course, that promise is realized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the Godhead to dwell within us, to transform us, to energize us, to empower us that we might run. We, we've got to run. We'll see that later in Philippians, but it is by God's strength through the Spirit. And so because of this, Paul was confident that he would be delivered because he knew God's Spirit was richly supplying everything he needed. You know, speaking of this confidence, didn't Paul already express this confidence on behalf of the Philippians? Do you remember Philippians 1.6 from uh, maybe a month ago? Look, look back at 1.6. He's speaking of them and he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God started you on this race. He'll finish you on the race. You, you've got to hold on. We've talked about that, but this is God's work of preservation. And Paul was confident that God would do this for the Philippians. He's confident that God would do this for himself. And this explains his, his confidence, which leads to his 
joy. The Christian race can be at times a treacherous one, taking you through dark valleys, troubled lands, full of opposition. Some legs of your race might include suffering. Some legs of your race might include persecution, hardship, even, like Paul, imprisonment. Paul is having a pretty rough stretch in his race at this time, right? Some of you might be the same place in a way. You, you, you're on the Christian race. You can't even see the finish line. You, you, you're, you're sinking under the pressure, wondering, how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to persevere as a Christian? It's just so hard. The world makes it very hard. How can you persevere? And the answer is you can't on your own, by your own strength, but you have to know and count that God richly supplies his grace and strength through the Spirit. And as you rely on this, God enables you to, to keep going. And to the degree that you place your confidence in God, through the prayers of others and through the provision of the Spirit, you'll have hope. Do you get that? To the degree that you're confident in God, you'll have hope. This is how Paul actually concludes this thought in the first phrase of verse 20. This, these verses, they're, they're like a big run-on sentence. It can be a little confusing, but trying to break it down. Looking at the beginning of verse 20. He's rejoicing because he knows, verse 19, he's going to be delivered. How is he going to be delivered? He's counting on the prayers of others and the provision of the Spirit. And then verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. This phrase right there, according to my earnest expectation and hope, it's attached to what he's saying in verse 19. Everything he just said, his confidence in his final vindication before God is according to his earnest expectation and hope. And basically he's saying, this is going to turn out just like I expect, just like I hope. The phrase earnest expectation, it's really just one word in the Greek, literally means stretching out your neck in anticipation. You're, you're like leaning forward to, to see something. You're concentrating your entire mind on something. This past Christmas, we were at my aunt's house, or the, a couple days after, actually. My son Noah was playing with this reindeer jack-in-the-box, you know, the winding toys. And he had done it a few times. He knew what was going to happen and just turned on the crank. And he, he, he was locked in. Nothing else in the room mattered. He was zoned in, slowly turning the crank. He knew it was going to happen, but he had this intense look of anticipation, just waiting for it. Didn't want to be scared, but you never know when it's coming. That feeling, that, that look, that anticipation, that's what Paul's talking about. That's, that's how he regards his deliverance. He's anticipating. He can almost taste it and feel it. It's coming. And he, he ties this expectation with his hope. These words actually go together. So in the Greek, you could really just read hopeful expectation. It's one thing to expect that something's going to happen. It's another to hope, hopefully expect that it will happen. You want it to happen. And Paul had this hope, this longing for his deliverance. He's like, he's ready to check out. We actually find that later in Philippians. He says, hey, if I'm going to die, you know, actually that's a good thing. It's far better to be with the Lord. He's waiting to go. That, that's real faith, that he really believes what comes next is going to be there, that Christ will greet him, that he will be saved. That's a test for all of us, right? Do you really believe? He, he was there. He was confident that his circumstances 
would end up in his deliverance and vindication before God. And so he, he eagerly anticipated that day. You know, many people, they fear death. This is the test of your faith. Do you long for Christ's return, for, for that day when you will be found by him, whether by life or by death? You have to ask yourself now, do you have this confidence in your own deliverance before God? Do you longingly look forward to the day when all wrongs will be made right and you'll, you'll be vindicated before Christ yourself? And keep in mind, I'm not talking about some sort of like works-based vindication where God will look how righteously you lived and, and say you did a good job. Now, we know we're talking about a faith-based vindication. We are vindicated simply because we counted on Christ. We trusted in the Savior to save us. Paul's vindication was only in Christ. But will you be found in Christ when all people stand before him on the threshold of eternity? Are you confident in the verdict that will be passed concerning you in regards to your eternal destiny? The Christian life can be hard, full of opposition, full of suffering. But this should only make you eagerly anticipate that day all the more. The day when Christ is revealed and we are finally redeemed, ultimately redeemed in him. And that confidence, if you have that confidence, will lead you to perseverance and to hope and to joy. And this is how Paul could be a, a happy Christian, even though he was in jail facing death. I mean, he wasn't happy about that, but he was still had a lot to look forward to, namely Christ. And what a rebuke this is to those of us who are unhappy Christians, even though we live in comfort and ease. I think the world would be turned upside down again if it were confronted by a multitude of happy Christians, confident Christians in Christ. It was this joy-producing confidence that enabled Paul to later say, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. But I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That right there pretty much just sums up our first point. Paul in 2 Timothy, he's writing now at the end of his life. That's his second Roman imprisonment. And that time he knows he's going to die. He's about to be executed. Those are his final words. And what does he say? Well, he says, I persevered. I finished the race. What's he looking forward to? To the crown of righteousness, which will be awarded to him, not because he's righteous, but because Christ gives us his righteousness. He's the righteous judge, but if you're found in faith by him, he gives you the crown of righteousness. Why will Paul get this crown? Simply because he followed Jesus by faith and loved his appearing. And all of this can be true for you too. If you look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, you give your life to him, persevere in the faith, you too will be delivered in the last day. Make this your confidence, your hope, and then you will share this joy 
no matter what the circumstances are. This is the first key area of Christian confidence that God wants you to have. Confidence in your deliverance by God. Secondly, confidence in dedication to God. Mention two areas of confidence God wants you to have. We find in the example of Paul here. Confidence in deliverance before God. Confidence in dedication to God. Let's read the passage again just to refresh ourselves. Look. Look back at the end of verse 18. He says again, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, and that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So like we said before, again, it can be a little confusing because it's like a long, run-on sentence type of passage. So what's going on? Paul is expressing his response to his circumstances of being unjustly imprisoned, and his response is to rejoice. It makes us wonder, how on earth could he rejoice at a time like that? And so he explains how he can rejoice at a time like that. It's because of his great confidence. Confidence in two things. Confidence in his deliverance by God. And confidence that in his life that he's lived dedicated to God. Whether by life or death, whether he lives or dies, Paul has lived unashamedly such that he knows Christ will be exalted by his life. In other words, he's lived as God has called him to live. So, so what's there to fear? I mean, man may kill the body, but he knows that God is with him. God is for him. God is, is being exalted by him. This is his confidence, and that should bring peace and joy. So in verse 20 now, Paul is showing off the second key area of Christian confidence, namely confidence in living a life dedicated to God. Paul lived a life dedicated or devoted to God such that he had no regrets. He was confident that his life would be glorifying to God. He wouldn't be put to shame. That, that should be our aim as well. We should aim to live such an unashamed, confident life dedicated to God. And Paul expresses this confidence and dedication to God in two ways. First, through living an unashamed life. You saw that in the middle of verse 20. He says that I will not be put to shame in anything. Here in the middle of verse 20, he's adding another reason why he's rejoicing, even though he's in prison and all that. He's rejoicing because, look, he he knows he, he will not be put to shame in anything. He's confident in this. He's lived his life in such a manner that he does not fear shame. What exactly does Paul mean when he says he will not be put to shame? Well, he uses the word in the passive He will not be put to shame. And when used as such, it refers to being disappointed or disillusioned or disgraced. Paul is looking on God to deliver him according to his promises, and he he will not be disappointed. He knows that. And here in verse 20, Paul still has in mind not being put to shame on the day of judgment because he failed to honor Christ and live for Christ. He knows that's not true. He, He lived for Christ, not perfect, But he he ran the race, he followed Christ, and so he will not be disappointed. He will not be put to shame. 
That's not true of all people, though. Some people will be put to shame. And sure, many of the wicked, they escape such shame in this life. They live lives of relative ease and comfort and prosperity. But a day of reckoning is coming, and on that day of the Lord, many people will be put to shame. How so? Well, there are two sources of such shame on that final day. The first is misplaced trust. And every few years, it seems like you hear about these financial gurus that come out. Maybe they write a book. They've got a website. And they figured out the secret of investing. They know how to double your money. You just got to send them your money, invest with them, and they will help you get rich. And countless people end up sending them their retirement funds or this or that. And all too often, they're revealed as frauds. They run off with the money or something like that. And these people, they're left ashamed. They're broke, and they've been put to shame because of their misplaced trust. Well, in a much more serious way, countless more people have misplaced their ultimate trust in a false god. And think of all the different world religions and worldviews. They can't all be right. And you study them, they're all pretty much mutually exclusive, which means one of them's right and everything else, by definition, is wrong. So if the atheist is right, when we die, we all fade to black. If the Muslim is right, when we die, we're all punished as infidels. If the Hindu is right, when we die, we're all reincarnated in a lower form. But we know our confidence is that Christ is right. And for all those who have devoted their entire lives to counterfeit systems on the day of judgment, it is their hope that will be proven false. They will see the one who is called faithful and true, whose eyes are a flame of fire, who's, who's clothed in a robe dipped with blood, with the name written on the robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in an instant, they will feel the greatest weight of disillusionment and discouragement, disappointment, shame will come upon them, and they will feel the weight of their sorrow and disgrace. They will know they've rejected Christ, but it is too late. And there he will be before them, not any longer to save, but to judge. That's simply the, 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 the words of the second coming in Revelation 19. And you think about Christ coming to judge. Does the thought disturb you a little or even scare you a little? Maybe you're one of those who's not sure. You're not sure Christ is right. And is, that, is this really the right worldview? Such is the test of faith. All I can do is urge you to get sure real fast. Get sure by praying to God to open your eyes and to turn to the word. Hey, read it for yourself. It will do the convincing by itself. You read the scriptures and see for yourself. God will convince you. Regarding Paul, though, he had come to the point where there is no longer any fear in his faith. There is only confidence. He truly believed Christ was right. And so he could say, again, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This was his confidence. He's not ashamed in the faith, not ashamed of the cross, not ashamed of Christ, like sadly many 
so-called Christians are. He, he knows whom he has believed. He's convinced. He is able to guard what he has entrusted to him until that final day, namely his soul, his salvation. You see, Paul had this confidence, not because he was sinless or perfect, but simply because he really knew Christ. He really trusted Christ. He knew that Jesus promises to save all those who believe in him. He knew that Jesus has the power to save all those who believe in him. And Jesus does not disappoint. Paul knew this. The question is, do you? And do you believe? And if you do, you won't be disappointed. Romans 9.33, Paul says, Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but he who believes in him will not be disappointed. As you know, many people stumble over Christ in unbelief. But those who trust in him will not be disappointed. Paul was among those who trusted, and so he feared no shame on the last day because his trust was not misplaced. This is the confidence that every Christian needs. You can see why God wants you to have this confidence. It is merely another way of describing faith. And such faith is essential to perseverance. It's essential to joy. Without it, you won't persevere. Without it, you won't have peace and joy in life. If you find yourself still struggling to believe, I pray you turn to Christ and to his word. You have to abide in in him. Go to him. Go to the source. See for yourself. Let the roots of your faith sink deep into the soil of Christ. Spread out and get to know him. The tree with roots that go deep into the earth can never be shaken. But if your faith is faltering, it's because somewhere along the line you, you've lost your grasp on Christ. You need to abide in him. Remember 1 John 2.28 John says, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. It's a perfect verse. You don't want that. You don't want to be one of the shamed when Christ comes. You want to, to see him and expect him and live for him with confidence. How do you do that? He says, abide in him. Attach yourself to Christ. It will be not good for many people on the day of Christ as their hopes are proven false. But among all people, do you know who will have it the worst? It is false Christians. There will be a great multitude of those who call themselves Christians, like Jesus himself taught. But on that final day, it's revealed throughout their life, in reality, they were ashamed of Christ. They were ashamed of the cross. They were ashamed of the gospel. In reality, they claim Christ just to serve self. They were cultural Christians, nothing more. And such false believers will meet a shameful end. Jesus himself says, Mark 8, 38, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. You don't want that to be you. I pray instead you have great confidence in your devotion to God, that you know whom you have believed. You are secure in your faith. You are convinced he's able 
to guard what you've entrusted to him. And, and you're all in. You believe and you can live with confidence. Back to Philippians 1. Paul first expresses his confidence and dedication to God through living an unashamed life. Paul knows whom he has believed. Secondly, he expresses his confidence and dedication to God through, through living a Christ-exalting life. Through living a Christ-exalting life. To finish, to finish it off now, look at the end of verse 20. He's confident that he will not be put to shame in anything, but he says, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Negatively, he knows he won't be put to shame. Positively, he knows Christ will be exalted in his body. Both truths express his confidence in his dedication to God. Notice he says he has all boldness. The word means courageousness. When it comes to speech, this boldness means just tell it like it is. And given that he reverts back to his personal circumstances, most likely he's talking about his bold speech before Caesar. Very soon, Paul is going to stand trial before Caesar himself, Nero, Emperor Nero. He's going to have to give account of his ministry and the charges against him. And he faces two outcomes. Either he will be released or he will die. Like he says, verse 20, whether by life or death, he could die. But either way, regardless of the outcome, Paul is confident that Christ will be exalted by him when that time comes, when he stands before Caesar. It could be, a, it could be his final stand. That could be his last sermon he will ever preach. One day that would come true, by the way. But still, he will preach to Caesar just like he preached to Agrippa. And if it meant death, well, that's okay. Because the, the sole obsession of Paul's life was to make Christ known. And if that was going to be his last audience, so be it. The phrase he uses, to see Christ exalted, literally means to make something large. You've got the magnifying glass. That's what he lived to do, to, to magnify Christ. And through his trial, Christ would be magnified in the sense he'd be proclaimed to a larger and greater audience. This would be his, his grandest stage yet, to preach Jesus before Caesar himself. And he was unashamed of that. Paul's entire existence was aimed at that one goal, goal to magnify Christ. You see, Paul knew something. He knew God has a simple goal, and that is to exalt his son Christ. And God aims to do so through believers. And so Paul, notice he doesn't say that Christ will be magnified and that's it. He says Christ will be magnified in him, by him. What this means is Paul lived a Christ-exalting life. He lived in such a manner that he truly sought to bring Christ's glory every day. He took every thought captive, he took every day captive to Christ, to live for Christ. Like we sang this morning, all I have is Christ. Easy to sing, but is it true? Paul was not playing the hypocrite. He was genuinely devoted to the Lord. I said earlier, there were two ways that many will be put to shame on the last day. I only told you one of them, which was misplaced trust. The second is by living a hypocritical life. Those who live a hypocritical life, which denies their faith, they too will be put to shame. So I ask you, do you really live a Christ-exalting life? Life. Do you live to make much 
of Jesus. Talking is the easy part. It's easy to say, yeah, I live for Christ. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I live I live to magnify Jesus. Sure. But does your life truly reflect that? What if some spy camera footage of your daily life at home was leaked onto the internet? What would we see? Would we see a life that exalts the Lord and magnifies Christ? Or one that exposes hypocrisy? If such a, a tape came out, maybe already some of you are, are feeling shame of what might be revealed. Or would you be confident knowing your life is pleasing to God? Again, no, none of us are perfect. We all fall short in so many ways. But even still, would we see a Christian who, when he sins, repents, seeks the Lord's restoration, counts on Christ even to pick him back up when he falls? We're talking about a life truly given over to Christ, kind of like 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Or Galatians 5.24. Now to those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Or how about Philippians chapter 2, or rather chapter 1 verse 27. In a few verses, what does he tell us? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I hope you get the picture. Living a Christ-exalting life means living radically centered on bringing the king glory. If it sounds radical, it's because it is. This is not just average Christianity. This is the only Christianity, but it is radical. Discipleship. So much so, you can almost anticipate what Paul is going to say next. How about one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Did you know that comes next? Verse 21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's what he's talking about here. What that means, you have to come back next week for that part. But for now, aspire to live such an unashamed life, confident, not in yourself, but in Christ, given over to living for his glory. Strive to be able to say along with Paul that now, as always, Christ will be exalted by your life. You're not perfect. We, we still sin and fall short. But you're running faithfully. You're counting on him. And you will strive to be, to be a, an exalting life. Live for him. Live so that as others see you, they see a reason to come to Christ, not turn the other way. These are two areas of Christian Confidence. Confidence in deliverance before God. Confidence in dedication to God. If these areas of confidence are yours, then joy will be yours. This is how you can rejoice. Like Paul, even in prison, no matter what your circumstances are, you still have peace and joy because you know the future. Confidence is all about knowing the future. And if you truly trust in the Lord, you know what's to come. Not in this life. Hey, you might live, you might die. But you know what comes next? You know you won't be put to shame. You know you will be delivered. That leads to great peace and great joy. This is what Philippians is largely about. But such joy only belongs to those who have a steadfast confidence in their God, in their Savior, in their position in Him. So make Christ your confidence and live for Him. And then you can be able to say joyfully, like Paul says in Philippians 2.17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering 
upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's rejoice in Christ. Our great God, we we bow before you this morning and thanking you for your word. And the writing of your servant Paul and how he reminds us and exhorts us to be confident. Our society is full of confident people, from the businessman to the athlete. Yet, Lord, theirs is a self-confident, and that will end. That will only take them so far, self-confidence. Lord, we aspire rather to make our confidence you, a God confidence, that we place our faith, our hope, our trust in you and you alone. For nothing else lasts, nothing else can deliver. Everything else will disappoint in this life, Lord, but, but you. You are everything. You are the reason for everything. You made us, then you even went so far as to redeem us through Christ. And that is our confidence as well, Lord. We know who we are. We know we fall short as great sinners before you. It's only by your grace, through our faith in Christ, that we are redeemed. Yet we know that day will come. Lord, the only way we can be of service to you and used by you in this life is if we live like we believe. If we live confident in Christ, then we can not be sidetracked and sidelined by by circumstances. We can live full force trusting in you. So I pray more this morning, Lord, through your preached word, you, you inspire us, you drive us to greater confidence. You build up our, our confidence in you and that we can live the lives you, you call us to live for as long as we may live. And whether by life or by death, Lord, we simply want to be exalting to you. Give us this brand of radical Christianity, which is the only discipleship Christ knows that we may be found in him pleasing and unashamed when we see him. To your glory, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.